The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Our God in heaven, you are worthy to be praised with our every thought and deed. But as we have just sung moments ago, you are sovereign over us. There is evidence that there is an enemy, that our, our flesh, the world, the devil, they are all opposed to our growth, to our spiritual maturity. But God, I pray that tonight and throughout the course of this summer, as we study the fruit of the Spirit, we might be transformed, that we might be conformed into the, the image of your Son, that through the course of hearing the good news, of hearing the Word, we might recognize areas that we are previously unaware of, areas that need to be tra- changed, to be transformed, areas of darkness in our own heart where we have not yet seen the light of the gospel take, take root. So Lord, I pray that you would please let this be a very edifying time, both tonight and for the remainder of the summer. Please give us grace tonight as we hear your Word, that as we listen that we would be able to hear with ears that you are giving by the Spirit, ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is always an inherent danger in reading Scripture out of context. You would never go to a movie theater, for example, and go in an hour and a half late, sit down, watch five minutes of the movie, and then walk out and think, you know what, I get it. I understand. That movie was excellent. Or you, d- you don't have the right to really declare whether or not this was a good movie or a bad movie. You don't really get to have an opinion if all you saw were those five minutes. You don't know what is happening in the story. You don't really know what it's about. I am really excited about our opportunity this summer to do a deep dive into what it means to live out and develop the fruit of the Spirit. However, I do want us to be very cautious not to misconstrue this index of virtues to make it out to be anything other than what the Holy Spirit intended it to mean to the early church. This summer, we're going to learn about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But if we're not guarding our approach, we're simply going to walk away as a legalistic catalog of commands that will leave us powerless to grow and likely even discouraged. So my purpose in teaching tonight is to set this list of nine fruit into its appropriate framework so that we might rightly apply them. Social media is one of the worst things in the world. It is destroying society. In fact, I would say it's probably the most significant invention since we started space travel. While preparing the sermon, I decided that I would look into this a little bit and just kind of research what's going on right now in terms of people's understanding of social media. I typed in something like social media, articles about social media, something like that, and here are the top five links that popped up. First, from Psychology Today, it said, why social media makes us angrier and more extreme. Link number two, from medium.com, information overload, why social media makes us angry. Number three, from IFL Science, It says, is social media making people depressed? Number four, from The Guardian, social media, why we are living in an age of anger. And number five, from a website called Ministry Tech, the internet is making us angry and thoughtless and less truthful. It seems to me that everybody can be on the same page that something is broken here, something is wrong. Do you see the common thread in all but one of these article titles? 
I briefly sifted through some of these articles and was completely unsurprised at what I found, that people are much more mean and aggressive and divisive when they use social media. They have this sense of power because they sit behind a keyboard and think, okay, well, I can say whatever I want because nobody's going to punch me through the screen. So they do. Ultimately, everyone would be well-served, I think, if we had a mandatory 24-hour wait before you could click post or send or tweet before anything goes out from your computer to the Internet. Sometimes we just have to hold back and wait for a more wise approach, a, a slower approach to conflict, where we think through what we say long before we actually say it. I want you to know, though, there are times when conflict is necessary. There are times when we must meet incorrect thinking head on. The book of Galatians is probably the oldest book in our New Testament. It is almost certainly the first letter that Paul wrote, and he was writing to a group of churches in the region of Galatia, which is part of what we now call Turkey. In this letter, Paul defends the gospel and he vehemently fights for the truth. And this is, without question and without comparison, the harshest letter ever written by Paul in our New Testament. But unlike most of us, he was not guilty of being brash or of being sinfully defensive or being unnecessarily divisive. Paul was loving these people by the way he wrote this letter. Paul was lovingly guarding their souls and shepherding these young Christians by drawing a clear line in the sand and says, there is a line here that must not be crossed. If we were to boil down the entire book of Galatians into just three words, it would be this. No other gospel. That's the basic argument that Paul is going to make throughout the remainder of what we are going to read about tonight. So tonight's sermon's structure will be very simply to walk through the entire book so that we can get a feel for the main arguments that are being made. Afterwards, we will close by carefully examining the overall purpose of the list that we now call the fruit of the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, if, it would certainly benefit you to have that opened to Galatians starting in chapter 1 so that you can follow along as we make our way through these six chapters together. Paul begins the letter with a short introduction, but does not let his readers get too comfortable before hammering them with his stated frustration. He says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul had preached to them the good news about salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And sadly, the gospel will always have its enemies. In this particular situation, there was a group known as the Judaizers who were teaching a works-based faith. Essentially, these Jewish men and women were not like the Jewish men and women that we experience and encounter most of the time here in Massapequa or in you know Long Island in general or in certain areas of Brooklyn. This, this is a very different kind of Jewish conversation than we have most of the time because they believed in the Trinity. And it seems that they believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And they believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. They believed that Jesus' blood even washes away sin. They believed a lot of right things. In other words, these people, we would say, are very close to believing much of what we believe. But there was something wrong that separated them from the truth of the gospel. They believed that nobody could be saved unless they first adhered to specific Jewish traditions. Most 
Specifically, they focus in in this book on the practice of circumcision. Mark Dever explains this by saying, they argued that before you could become a Christian, you first had to become Jewish. This kind of works-based faith is at the center of all false gospels. It is the idea that you can somehow work your way to God. You can earn your way to heaven by self-improvement. But if that were true, then there would be no need for Jesus to have come to die on our behalf. That is the argument that Paul is going to be making here in this book. Someone recently asked me, very innocently, not trying to stoke a fight or anything, just said, why is it that you don't view the Roman Catholic Church as a legitimate Christian denomination? And the answer is the same as Paul's in this chapter, that they have denied salvation by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. In fact, in the Council of Trent, it declares an anathema on anyone who believes in salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. An anathema is a declaration that these people must be cursed to die and go to hell. That is what the term anathema means. And we do find that term in the New Testament, interestingly enough, right here in this book. And it's used for the exact opposite reason that the Catholics use it in the Council of Trent. Paul continues in verse 8 and says, But if we, even if we or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. That is the word anathema. If you come and preach something else, may that curse be on you. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Again, the word anathema. The Mormons heard about their false gospel from an angel, supposedly, right? Moroni, this angel that came down and wrote on the golden bowls that only one guy happened to see, right? This angel came from heaven, but it's a different gospel. So therefore he must be accursed. Do not listen. The Muslim faith is built on the belief that the angel Gabriel transmitted the information of the Quran to Muhammad. Guess what? It's a different gospel. It is not worth listening to, even if its divine origin is true, which I don't believe that it is. Hindus believe that their religion was explained to a prince by Krishna who wrote about this in the Bhagavad Gita. The Roman Catholics changed their beliefs on what? Based upon the direction of the Pope. Some kind of a different gospel based upon their ruler, their leader, their authority, but not the true authority, which is the scripture itself. The Bible is clear. There is no other news that can save. It is only the simple gospel message that was delivered once for all. Throughout this book, you're going to see how Paul was attacked by his opponents. They argued that this gospel was simply made up by Paul, to which he responds in verse 10 with these words. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I hope you understand what he's saying. This is not the kind of news that he would have fabricated. This is not the kind of story, not the kind of gospel that he would have naturally made up. He was initially the most works-oriented guy in the world. Paul is arguing that this message was not written to promote himself. It wasn't written to promote his own form of Christianity that he devised, nor was it designed to make people happy. People want to work for their salvation. They want to think that they're good enough for God. They want to imagine that they're good enough or strong enough or pure enough to deserve forgiveness and reconciliation. But nobody is. This book is Paul's attempt to protect these new Christians from following that kind of lie. 
He does so by giving them a biographical sketch of his salvation and how he was called to ministry in the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And he even includes a story in the middle of chapter 2 about how then after he was called into ministry, he confronted Peter for falling into this legalistic trap of the Judaizers. Peter was what some call the chief apostle. He was avoiding fellowship with the Gentiles because of what Paul calls a fear of the circumcision party. So let's get the picture here. The church often gathered together for meals. There was a period of time when Peter was just fine hanging out with the Gentiles. Everything was great, and he was sharing a meal with them just like he would share a meal with anyone else within the Jewish church. And it's important for us to understand, in their culture, sharing a meal was incredibly significant. It was a recognition of acceptance. If you share a meal with somebody, you were declaring, we are friends, we are simpatico. But now, the Judaizers come. They arrive in the city. They begin teaching their false doctrines. And now, Peter becomes fearful to be associated with the Gentiles. He doesn't want to be around them. He doesn't sit with them or eat with them. And Paul does not simply call this sin racism, although it certainly includes that. He refers to it as hypocrisy, and he states that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That is a quote. He says that Peter was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Just as a side note, for those who believe that Peter was the first pope, this is a great thing to just ask them, what does this mean, that Peter could be out of step? with the gospel it's important for us to see that this is a trap that we can easily fall into as well if peter the chief apostle the one who jesus was teaching to lead the apostles even when he was here on the earth if this guy could fall into the trap so can you and so can i so at the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three we reach the very heart of the book allow me to summarize his argument with three very brief quotes first he says in chapter two verse 21 I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, Paul is saying, if you can actually be righteous enough to make God happy and to make your way to heaven, then guess what? Jesus should never have shown up here. He should have never been born in Bethlehem. He should have never been crucified. There is no reason because you're doing just fine on your own. And that's what you think you're doing. You think that you can be saved by works, therefore nullifying the grace of God. Then the second thing I want to show you is the next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, which says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, have you not seen by your own salvation that Jesus was truly crucified and that that was a valuable act for the salvation of your souls? If so, if you really believe that Jesus died for sinners, then why would you want to try to work it out through works? Why would you desire to go to some other way to God? There is grace sufficient for you, and now you're saying to God, no thanks. Third thing, look at the next couple of verses. It says, let me only ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is a rhetorical question. Obviously, they didn't receive it by works of the law. These are Gentiles. These are people that didn't even have the law until this time when they heard it from the Old Testament for the first part of their life. I mean, they didn't know what was in the law. Did you get it from the law? Of course not. He continues and says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? 
Clearly, that's a crazy concept. If you are saved by grace through faith, by the Spirit, and living in you, then of course, that's the only way for you to continue to grow. Do you think that you have power now that you didn't then? No, you were not God. You were not God then. You were not God now. Let's pause for a moment and define our terms. Legalism is one of the most abused terms in the Christian vernacular. People often use this word to describe or define any kind of Christian activity that they don't like or that they personally disagree with or that they don't personally practice. However, legalism has a very narrow biblical definition. Legalism is attempting to gain God's favor by anything other than Jesus Christ. It's thinking, God loves me much more if I just do this or that. God loves me more if I am five minutes early to church. I want you to be five minutes early to church, but that does not make God love you more or less. Or perhaps you're saying, God will let me into heaven because of my particular baptism story about when and how I was baptized. Well, guess what? That's not what's in the Bible. No, and maybe you say, well, God loves me because I'm generous or because I'm kind or because I'm evangelistic or whatever it might be. If there's anything that you fill in the blank with why God loves you other than because Jesus died on your behalf, then that is legalism. It could be the way that you approach your Bible reading. Well, this is just what Christians do. I have my checklist. I have my daily reading plan. I'm going to read it. And then you read it and you go to the Bible without even considering that your job is to meet with God there. And you go through it. You read it as if God doesn't exist. You read it like you might read a textbook of something you don't, aren't even interested in. And then you want to quickly forget after the test is over. And you read it and you walk away and there's no transformation because you just don't trust that God is going to speak through his word. That is a form of legalism. I just keep doing it for the purpose of doing it, but not for the reasons that the scripture teaches us to do it. There is a hole in our holiness here. It's important for us to see how this was tricky for the early Jewish people. Consider what would go on in the mind of somebody who for centuries, for a thousand years, for 1,500 years... Their entire culture has been built around doing particular things. And now, as they are coming to an end of those particular things, that was very challenging for them because it was quite cultural for them. And now as they're looking around, some of them are beginning to think this. Well, in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, we we came to God by works. And now, if we say that it's by grace alone then in some way it's being watered down, that God is somehow now lowering the bar. He's making the expectations easier. So doesn't that make God less holy? And that was kind of the argument of these Judaizers. Well, if God says, well, it's okay now, then it means it must have been okay earlier because God doesn't change. We have to understand that Paul is now going to attack that kind of false thinking, and he's going to go right at the root of their theology by pushing the grace of God farther back and showing that in the Old Covenant, you were never saved by works. There was never one moment where works brought you to God. So he's going to explain that Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, he goes right back to the origin and says that he was not saved by works of the law. This is what he's getting at in chapter 3, verse 11, when he says, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Remember, Abraham was justified when? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then you have 400 years in, in Egypt, then Moses, and comes the law. He was justified long before the law came. The whole argument that he's making here is that justification was never by works of the law. Justification was always, from the beginning, by faith alone. 
So Paul continues to explain in chapter 3 how trusting in Christ alone is the path to true spiritual freedom. And then Paul swiftly moves forward from his Old Testament example to a very personalized one about them. He says in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental, elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Do you see how disturbing that concept must be? Earlier I mentioned how toxic the internet can be. And now let me give you the flip side. The internet is also this incredible tool by which you can learn incredible things. You, you can have a database of basically everything that's ever written down right there that you can search the text for it. I've been amazed at the blessing of the internet in terms of research. And one really amazing thing that I encourage you to check out if you ever have an opportunity is something called the Slave Narrative Collection. It's a collection of over 10,000 pages that were written down by historians where they had interviewed over 2,000 slaves that had been freed one way or another during the Civil War or directly following. And this collection has incredible stories in it. All of these stories are important to bring light to the horrors and the evils of slavery that took place here in the United States. However, the stories that most draw me in are those about the ones who found their freedom via the Underground Railroad. I find those to be particularly enlightening. Now imagine this. There's a man about 20 years old. His name is Charles. We don't know exactly how old this guy was because in those days, slaves were often separated from their parents when they were very young and they weren't told how old they were. They weren't given birthdays. So each year they didn't calculate these sorts of things. So he didn't know his actual age and he was separated and he was raised in a very abusive home where he was required to serve picking cotton down in the south. This man, Charles, determined that he would risk his life to run away from his very abusive master so that he could find freedom farther in the north. So he ran away. He ended up running from hunting dogs as he was chased along the Tennessee River. He mostly slept in a creek or creek beds along the way so that he could have the smell washed away from him by the water that goes by. And he would cover himself up with sticks and mud so that nobody would see him, so that the dogs wouldn't find him or smell him. As he was traveling north, he would stop sometimes for the night, but he would only usually sleep for about three hours at a time, which was driving him to a point of limited sanity. He was struggling to keep awake even as he was walking during the day. He would lose himself and not recognize which direction he was going or if he'd even turned around. He was in danger of many things. And then finally, he came to a place that he'd been told about. It was a small house at the edge of a town in southern Tennessee. The house had a lantern burning through the night outside on a hook, which was a symbol of the Underground Railroad, although they didn't call it that at this period of time. And he fearfully went to the door in the middle of the night, not knowing if this was a friend or an enemy. And he knocked on the door, and the people let him in. They gave him some food. They helped him. But very quickly after that, just a few days later, after he was restored in his strength, he was sent on. This was just the beginning of being shuffled from house to house for another 560 miles until he finally made it into Canada. He was only able to travel at night. There were often bounty hunters that were out searching for people in his exact situation. They were very happy to round up a few escaped slaves and return them for a hefty bounty. And there was always the fear that he wouldn't find the right house. There was always fear that it would be a trap 
that somebody would have told a lie. There was danger of being in the cold. There was danger of wild animals. There was danger of sickness. There was danger of hunger. Yet he continued on until finally he reached the freedom of Canada. And at that point, Charles was finally free and there was no more danger of being arrested. There was no bounty hunter that was legally permitted to cross that line and go find him and bring him back. He was now able to do whatever he wanted. He could get an education and get a job. He could marry who he wanted and then he could create a family. He could do things that before he could never imagine doing freely. These stories are incredibly helpful in reminding this generation of the value of all people, that we are all created in the image of God and we are therefore of intrinsic value. But imagine what would have happened if Charles decided after maybe five or six years of being in Canada, after marrying a woman and starting to have a family, having two or three children, let's just imagine that Charles now decides it's time for me to go back. It's time for me to return to that slave master. It's time to travel back home. That is crazy. That is insanity. And this is exactly what Paul is using to illustrate the situation here. He is arguing that being under the law is the same as being under spiritual bondage. And Paul explains this by giving the example of Hagar and Sarah from the wives of Abraham. He explains that one is a slave woman and one is a free woman, and that all who are attempting to reach God through works of the law are functionally spiritual slaves, and they are therefore not part of the promise. But those who trust the promise of Christ, they are truly saved individuals, and they are, as Paul explains them, born into freedom. There is freedom and and you can now do what you can never previously do in honoring Christ and being free from your propensity of sin. You can now obey him. Paul concludes this part of the argument in chapter 5 verse 1 when he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. He's saying, listen, guys, I know that this is a compelling concept. I know that they're saying, well, God will love you if you just do this first. This is the one thing you must add to the gospel. There is nothing that you can add to the gospel and make it better. Anything that you add to the gospel will simply destroy it because it is Christ alone that saves. So Paul concludes this by telling us, if you accept this, you are not actually trusting Christ for your salvation, and Christ has no value, of no benefit. There's no advantage to you to go to Christ if you are also trying to live by works. So as a reminder, all of Paul's letters have the same flow to them. The first part is theology, and the second part is application. Or it could be said, the first part is an explanation of orthodoxy, meaning right teaching, right doctrine. And the second part is a call to orthopraxy or right living. This book is no different from the rest. However, the commands that we are about to see are not random. They are not some smattering of disconnected virtues. Rather, they are carefully crafted as a call to avoid the pitfalls that so naturally accompany those who get the first part of this book right. So basically he's saying, faith alone in Christ alone. That is how we come to salvation. But don't let the pendulum swing all the way to the other side and become now someone who is absolutely opposed to doing anything right or honorable or following the commands of the scripture because you say, well, if God's going to save me and love me no matter what I do, then I can do whatever I want. Several years ago, there was a pastor who began to get lots of notoriety in our church's circle, the ones that uh, 
you know, are kind of the faithful doctrines of grace types churches up in the New York area. We began to be, you know, this guy was kind of getting onto our radar. He was an incredible speaker, and he knew his doctrine backwards and forward. He was brilliant. And he was not only a genius, he was also excellent at having gracious, long-form debates with those who were unbelievers, which gracious debates are rarely had by anyone these days. This man was a very encouraging man in that way. I, I, I looked up to this man. However... Just before this guy was about to speak at a relatively well-known annual conference, it came to light that he was in the midst of an extramarital affair. This man is no longer in ministry in any capacity. As far as I know, I'm, I'm not even sure that he is attending church on any level. He gave away his entire library, and some of those books, those good Christian books that he used to read, I have down in my library now, and his name is in the front of them. And I look at those books, and I see them, and I think to myself, whenever I look at them, what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. By your fruit, by their fruit, you will know them. This man understood the first part of Galatians, but he didn't really believe it. Because if he really believed the argument that Paul is making, then the fruit or the evidence would come forth that he was really living for Christ. Right now, I'm really enjoying gardening. Um, never thought I would say that, but I like it. Um, Normally, I used to kill everything that I put in the ground, but now, uh, clearly, God does the work. Um, so we planted a lot of different things in my backyard. We planted some corn and some carrots and even some grapes and other things that we're hoping the Lord will bless and that will be bountiful. But my favorite, I was actually um, very encouraged by going over to Marco and Lillian's house, and they have a lemon tree that that they um, have a lot of lemons producing from it every year. It's one of those things that you grow inside during the winter and you take it outside in the planter for the summer. And it just is amazing. They have tons and tons of lemons coming out of this thing all the time. And I thought, man, I would love that. That would be incredible. So I went to Home Depot and I, and I found, I just happened to cross one, but it was in that outdoor area of Home Depot where there had just been a big wind and rainstorm. So it had some packaging on it, but the packaging was really damaged. It was really wet. So that was on a major sale. So I figured, hey, it's a plant. It can get wet. So I'll buy it. And hopefully it's actually a lemon tree. But I'm not positive that it is a lemon tree. But I think it's a lemon tree. So it's growing in a planter in my backyard. I think that it's a lemon tree. But until it starts producing fruit, I'm not really sure that that's what it is. And so I'm hopeful that it will be. But what if next summer that it begins to grow limes or oranges? The fruit gives evidence to what kind of plant it really is. Sometimes that takes time before you actually see it. What we're, take, what we're seeing take place here in the end of the book of Galatians is the fact that there is going to be fruit. The roots are going to produce the same kind of fruit as whatever root it is. If your root is a truly saved person, the fruit of the Spirit that we're about to see is the natural result. If you are not producing this kind of fruit, then your root is a different kind of plant. You will know them by their fruits. Jesus says that a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. It doesn't get more basic or fundamental or simple than this. What we must understand is these commanded fruit of the Spirit are things that grow naturally in the believer's life. It's important for us to understand that the Bible uses the term fruit as a way to speak about evidence. So as we see the fruit of an individual, we will recognize the evidence of Christ's work in them. Uh, let me warn you again against the about the danger here, that it's possible to look at chapters 1 through 4 and to say, well, I am saved by grace, so my actions don't matter. I can't impress God, obviously. I can't convince him to love me more. I, I, I can't gain his favor by work, so why bother doing anything? If that is your response... 
and there is no fruit, then it is an evidence that you truly don't know Christ at all. This is why Paul makes a list of fruit that is representative of an unbeliever. This is the kind of life that we've been saved from, it says in chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. He says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is explaining what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. Salvation is what theologians like to call monergistic. That's, I know, a big theological doctrinal term. It's important to understand the meaning. It means that salvation is one-sided. God saves us apart from our works, apart from our desire. God opens our understanding. He gives us the gift of faith and repentance. God is the one who does the work from beginning to end in our salvation. Salvation and justification, coming to Christ and when we get saved, that is monergistic. God saves us completely apart from us. But sanctification, we see, is synergistic in the New Testament. It's something that God calls us to take place actively in. It is something that we must do and we are called to do. And in fact, something that we cannot do unless God is working in us and through us. Yet, we are called to take the steps. Yesterday, we had some folks over at our house, including the Heiferts. And my daughter, Petra, she's, uh, we asked her what she wants to be when she grows up. And she said, I want to be a mom. Uh, she's already working on that. She's, she's loving these little babies. She's walking them around. And so she's got um, little baby Gavin, right? Gavin is great. He, he, some people have said he looks kind of like a cartoon baby. Um, he is super cute. And he's a little top-heavy. So when he's, he's trying to walk, he just kind of leans in one direction or the other. And so Petra's trying to help him walk, which he's not even really crawling yet, so this is a stretch. But so she picks him up, and he gets his little kind of bow legs down there, and she's trying to help him walk. And it is just fun to watch. He can't walk, but she's holding him up. And if he just slides his foot forward, then she'll move forward with him. And then she'll move the other foot forward, and she moves forward with him again. He can't do that on his own, but he can if she is the one holding up to do it. That's what walking by the Spirit is. The Spirit of God is the one that gives us the strength and ability to honor God and to grow in these spiritual things that we see here, these nine fruit of the Spirit. They are the fruit of the Spirit, meaning the fruit that belongs to and comes from and originates in the Holy Spirit. That is His fruit, and it develops in us, but we are also called to actively engage in practicing these things so that we might become more conformed to the image of Christ. Just like Petra holding him up, he could not make an inch forward without her assistance. Likewise, in the fruit of the Spirit, we could walk away this summer by just saying, man, I just need to love people more. I just need to be more kind. I just need to have more self-control. All of things are, th- these things are true and obvious, and that's true of every single one of us. None of us are at 100% in any of this, these categories. But you know what you could do? You could go down to the Barnes and Nobles that are closing all over the place out here, and you could walk in and say, well, where's your self-help section? And walk over and get a book on self-control, or one on love, or one on kindness. And guess what? They will have limited value, but they might help you in some ways be nicer, or think of ways that you can be a little less abrasive, or maybe smile more. But ultimately, none of those things are going to ultimately take effect in your life in such a way that they make you more like Christ. They can make you more of a Pharisee, 
They can make you a more friendly sinner, but they can't change your heart. And what we're looking at this summer is how is it that God is going to transform our heart in such a way that we will be more like Christ as we see these gifts of the Spirit. It's at this point that we arrive at our text for the summer, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, which says, but, or as in opposition to that list of sinful things we just read, he says, but the fruit or evidence of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit's work in your life, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Let me give three quick observations and then we'll close out. First of all, nobody is ever saved by works. Nobody has ever been saved by works. No one will ever be saved by works. But without faith, it must be understood that without works, faith is dead. So although we are not saved by works, they are a necessary intrinsic part of the Christian life. So although you and I have a long way to go in our sanctification, we should be able to look over this list and at the end of the summer look back and say, wow, God did a great deal of work in me. I hope that by the end of the summer, you'll look back and you will say, wow, there was a gaping hole in my holiness. There was a missing part of my Christian life that the Lord illuminated and he showed me what I needed to do and how I needed to repent. And I I hope by the end of this summer that you will be filled with all of these things where we are currently lacking. As we see these needs, we have to go to Christ, who is the perfect example of each one of these superlatives. Now, I'm not going to give this away too much tonight, because I anticipate that every single time we come together, this will be a highlight of the evening. But Jesus is the one who has perfect love and the fullness of joy and etc. for each one of these things. It is Christ who is not only our example, but he is the one who develops these gifts in us. So preachers who are here that are going to be preaching this summer, I want to encourage us to use this pulpit rightly. I want to call on you to use this pulpit in such a way that you would put the gospel at the center of your preaching ministry. Let's not preach a works-based faith, just saying, just do better. But let's do a Christocentric, gospel-centered kind of sermon where we teach each other about holiness and Christian maturity in such a way that we say, we can't do it, but in Christ, all things are possible and we can accomplish with Jesus. So don't let the summer be a time of laziness, church. Don't let this be a time where you guys just kind of let the ball roll and eventually, like tomorrow, it's basically September. You know, don't wake up in the morning and say, wow, I just missed it. This was a lazy time in my Christian walk. I don't really see any growth in my life. It can be really easy to let things slide while you focus on all the great things about summer. But it's my hope that by the end of this calendar summer, that you're going to look back and you're going to see how far the Lord has carried you. This will only happen if you are intentional to pursue Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I encourage you to begin by reading Galatians. Read it at least three times before next Wednesday. An average reader can read the book of Galatians in about 20 minutes. I want to encourage you to read it a lot slower than that. Take an hour at least to read through this book. Slow down, ask questions, think carefully about what it's saying. The argument of Paul is very complex, but also it boils down to a very simple reality. Jesus Christ saves and nothing else does. So read through the book, get a sense of his argument as we go through it this summer. I want to also encourage finally to allow this sermon to sink in the way that Paul allows this book to sink in with this final statement from chapter 6. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. 
He doesn't close this book by saying, you can do it, just try. Just put some muscle into it. Here's a bunch of steps. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. God, we pray that this summer we would be greatly growing in grace, that we would be strongly encouraged by your word, that we would not have a works-based faith, but we would be dedicated to knowing you and loving you and experiencing your love and thereby growing into the image of Christ that we see represented here in these nine attributes. God, I pray that each person in this room would recognize and have a, a very serious inward glance, that they would walk circumspectly, recognizing that there is need for growth in their heart, and they would see what that looks like through the sermons that will be preached this summer. Lord, I do pray for those who are going to be preaching, those who are seasoned preachers and those who are new in the pulpit. God, I ask that you would give them strength and clarity and wisdom about how to present this in such a way that there is no legalism that you could even sniff in that sermon. God, please give us the ability to lead this church with grace. Please let every heart be filled with joy. Please give us peace with one another and with God. Lord, I pray that all of these attributes would be developing in each one of us in such a way that the world could not deny that they are present. For against these things there is no law. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.